بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم الله أكبر الله أكبر على كل من طغى وتجبر ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد النبي الأمين خاتم المرسلين وعلى آله وأصحابه وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين الله الله يا علي عظيم يا سابغ النعم يا دافع النقم يا فارج الغمم يا كاشف الظلم يا أعدل من حكم ويا حسيب من ظلم يا أول بلا بداية ويا آخر بلا نهاية اللهم ندعوك ونتوسل إليك أن تجعل لنا من أمرنا فرجا ومخرجا يا رب العالمين Praise be to the Almighty, the one and only, who is unlike any other, the one and only God, the creator of time, but who is outside of time. The creator of space, but who is outside of space. And who is unbounded and unlimited by space. The one and only who is the source of real justice. The, one, the source of true justice in this universe. For true justice does not exist with anyone else but God. God, the source of light, the source of true love, all other forms of love are but derivative and incidental and temporal. But love, the love of God and the love that comes from God is unbounded 
unrestricted and universal. We turn to God who is the source of all goodness. God who gave us the month of Ramadan as a way to discipline ourselves and teach ourselves and to try to teach us to have sovereignty over our willpower. Human beings are born on this earth and from the minute they are born they are tempted by dependency. They're first dependent on parents and then soon enough they depend on their friends and then soon enough they depend on their spouses and then soon enough they depend on their children and then soon enough they depend on society and then they die. From one dependence to another. But as you move from one stage of dependence to another, you might never get to know your true self. Your true self is lost in the stages of dependence and imitation. From one state of reliance and weakness to another, the only liberation, if only we would know, if only we would know, the only liberation is that some stage in your existence, you learn to depend on the truly dependable. To depend on the truly dependable. And that is God subhanahu wa ta'ala. You depend on your parents but your parents, in truth, are frail and human and temporal. And like everything else, they have to struggle with their own, with their own dependencies and addictions. And then you depend on friends and friends are no less compromised than your parents. In fact, they are far more compromised. They have the hubris of young age, the arrogance of inexperience, and the hopefulness of 
the hopefulness that comes with ignorance. And then you depend on a spouse. But a spouse is every bit as frail and every bit as confused and often lost and in so many occasions, so many occasions, conflicted, inconsistent, and contradictory. And then eventually you depend on society, on society when you're a senior citizen and society is insensitive and uncaring and cold, undogmatic, and then you die. Along this journey, Allah consistently extends the divine hand to you. Along this journey, Allah is always there and always with you. Along this journey, Allah consistently sends you glimmers of lightning, little flashes of light in your heart, in your soul, in your mind that say, Turn towards me. Learn to depend on me before it's too late. I see your pain. I see your suffering. I see how lost you are. I see how confused you are. I see to what extent you swing between the extremes of self-adulation and irrational self-idealization and complete despair and hopelessness. Turn towards me. Turn towards the true and only, the one and only. The one who doesn't change, doesn't need, doesn't covet. The one who is outside the bounds of time and outside the bounds of space and outside even the bounds of logic. SubhanAllah. This is among the reasons that we have Ramadan. Ramadan, as we fast, and if we reflect upon why we fast, and if we perform our duties during Ramadan the way we are supposed to perform them, We notice this entire dynamic because the beginning of wisdom 
The beginning of wisdom is always self-denial. No wisdom comes to those who do not deny themselves what they desire. It is impossible. When you learn to deny yourself, you bring, you start, you begin the process of disciplining the ego. And disciplining the ego is the beginning of the process of understanding who you should depend on and how you should depend on the Almighty, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Islam, if understood the way it should be understood and practiced in its true meaning, true meaning as it was revealed to the Prophet Ibrahim and as it was revealed to all the prophets since the prophet of Ibrahim والسلام, to our very day, and especially as illustrated and demonstrated to us by the prophet Muhammad والسلام, In this context, We must always try to understand from the precedent set by our Prophet what type of moral character, what type of ethical being, did what model of morality and ethics the Prophet ﷺ followed and taught to his companions. One of the things that I've thought about for years, ritualistically, we have all the rituals that existed from the time of the Prophet ﷺ. We do the same Salah in Ramadan, at least a good number of Muslims, I don't know what percentage, abstain from food and drink from sunrise to sundown, those who are able perform Hajj and Umrah. Umrah the rituals 
are there. But the spirit understanding how transformative the spirit that these rituals are designed to support and to nourish, that's what's missing. Want to share with you a story from the seerah of the Prophet that shows us the type of human being, the type of society that those who first learned how to fast Ramadan, those who first received the Ramadanic message, how it transformed them and what it induced within the type of moral character it has created within. To tell you this narrative, I need to take a step back and just set up the context. Among the companions of the Prophet was a man called Bilal. Bilal became famous because he had a beautiful voice and he would do the adhan in Medina. Once Muslims were able to migrate from Mecca to Medina, they were able to publicly perform the adhan. And once Bilal would stand on a small minaret, or sometimes not even a minaret, but anyway, do the call for prayer, then that would be the sign that, and, and people would flock to the masjid to, pr to pray behind the Prophet ﷺ. Bilal was among the early converts in Islam. He was of Abyssinian background, so he is from today's Ethiopia. He's dark-skinned. And he was brought to Medina as a slave. According to the laws of the time, even if you are a slave and you gained your freedom, because this is a tribal society, every human being had to be linked to some tribe or another. So either you were a free member of a tribe, a real member of a tribe, or you were what they called a mawali. Mawali means a tribe has an association with you. You are an associate of a tribe. All slaves who were freed, who chose to remain living, in either Mecca or Medina, they would become associated with a tribe, a mawla. 
So Bilal was a slave in Mecca, but he converted to Islam early on, and the person who owned Bilal, his master, was incensed that his slave would become Muslim, defying his master's orders, and in a very well-known story, Bilal is savagely tortured in Mecca. The, the, his, slave, his, his owner would actually invite other unbelievers to come in and join in the torture of Bilal. Eventually, Bilal, Abu Bakr Siddiq, spends a great deal of money to buy Bilal's freedom and set him free. And now Bilal is a free man, but he was a mawla. We associated under the protection of a tribe. Anyway, but part of this experience is that Bilal became known the extent to which he valued being a free man and the extent to which he hated being a slave. His life as a slave was miserable. And he is well known to, well known for a variety of statements about the extent to which he is traumatized when he remembers the days of his slavery, the extent to which he had this deep love for Abu Bakr Siddiq and the Prophet for among so many things, buying him and setting him free for his freedom. And Bilal was after, especially after Muslims migrated from Mecca to Medina, Bilal became a very close associate of the Prophet he is always present in so many of the events that unfold. And he is one of the close companions to the Prophet Among the tasks given to this Abyssinian freed man is that he became responsible for the Prophet's treasury in Medina. Bilal, what, the equivalent of the public treasury in our language today, the state-owned money. Bilal would keep an accounting of what was in the public treasury, how much was left, what was spent. Now, the Prophet lived a life of complete austerity. 
regardless of what existed in the public treasury. The Prophet ﷺ was not like the rulers of Mecca today. They didn't buy yachts for half a billion dollars and a painting for I don't know what and live in palaces and drive expensive cars. The Prophet ﷺ would quite often sleep on the floor if his little spread was not in the room for whatever reason, or he was not above simply sleeping on the floor. He ate whatever was available. If someone invited him to a meal, he ate what was provided. But in his own, in his own home, there would rarely be anything to cook. Often he would eat either dates and milk or even a piece of bread with nothing else. His entire life he had two or three garbs that he changed in. He would mend his own clothes, he would wash his own clothes, and if there is food presented to him, he eats. If there was no food presented to him and he's hungry, he gets up and finds a piece of bread and eats it and that's it. Regardless of what existed in the public treasury or not. What existed in the public treasury if money needed to be spent on arming Muslims and making the Muslim nation strong so that it can defend itself, that was spent. But beyond that, it was well known that anyone in need could simply knock at the Prophet's door, and the Prophet would call Bilal and say, Bilal, such and such has come. Such and such is a need. What's in the public treasury? Go help him. The attitude that Muslims learned towards money is that money is there to help others. Money is there to be circulated and shared, not coveted and monopolized. People, many of whom, by the way, where also new converts to Islam knew that the public treasury would be especially full during the month of Ramadan and that this was a very good time to travel to Medina. Some people came from as far as Egypt and Iraq and Syria, places that were not even Muslim yet. And they would go to the Prophet and say, 
I need money, I have a debt, my business is failing, my children need this, my whatever. So, in one such night during Ramadan, a man comes to the Prophet who is actually known to be a poor man in Medina. And people knew that if they went to the Prophet the leader of the, of the Ummah, if they are in need and there is money available, they will get money spent on them. So the man goes to the Prophet and says, and it was night, it was after breaking fast, and he says, Here are, here's my situation, I have debts, I need money, please help me out. The Prophet, as the normal practice, calls Bilal and tells Bilal the circumstances of this brother is such and such. Is there something, can we help him out? Bilal, who is literally raised on the morality of the Prophet, said, Inshallah, don't worry, we'll help him out. The problem, though, is that Bilal knew that the treasury was zero, was no money available. What Bilal had in mind was that he will take the man and borrow money the, on behalf of the treasury of Medina. He will borrow money help this man out, and then the public treasury will pay that debt later. When Bilal takes our friend, and he starts thinking, well, I could go to Abu Bakr, but no, I've gone to Abu Bakr so many times, taken money, we owe Abu Bakr, so the public treasury that year presents at this point, owes Abu Bakr a great deal already. Ali, I know Ali doesn't have anything. Omar, I know Omar doesn't have anything. Osman, we've already borrowed so much from him. Bilal wants to help this gentleman and doesn't have the heart to go back to the Prophet and tell him, we have nothing. So he goes to one of the merchants in Medina, I forgot his name. The merchant does something that is very um, low. People in Medina, the hypocrites of Medina and the non-Muslims of Medina already knew that usually was forbidden. But there was a loophole at that time. Among the very common sources of slavery back then was debt bondage. You borrow money, you can't pay off your money, you become a slave. 
Eventually, that's banned in Islam. But when this incident took place in the second year of Hijrah, that bondage was not banned yet. So Bilal goes to this merchant and he tells the merchant, can I borrow money on behalf of the treasury, pay you back later to help this man? The merchant presents Bilal with a horrible response. He says, okay, it is said that he, in some narratives it says that he was not Muslim, and uh, some narratives say that he was a hypocrite. Anyway, okay, I'll help the gentleman. However, if you, Bilal, are unable to pay me back in a month, you become my slave. Now, Bilal hated slavery and still remember the miserable sufferings and the indignities and humiliations he suffered as a slave. Incredibly, because Bilal did not want to turn away a person in need, Bilal agreed. And we know that Bilal told this Gentlemen, if only you knew how much I hate what I promised, that either we pay back, we pay up, or I become this man's slave. Of course, the person in need took the money and left. He was happy. A nerve-wracking month passes, and Bilal is very worried about returning to slavery, becoming a slave once again. At the same time, he doesn't have the heart to tell the Prophet that this is how I helped the man. Because he knows that if he tells the Prophet the, pro the first thing the Prophet will say, why did you do that? Yes, I wanted you to help the man, but not possibly return yourself to slavery. As the deadline approaches, Bilal grows more and more concerned and more and more worried. Could it be that I will be returned to slavery? In the very final day, the man goes to Bilal and says, time up, pay now or become my slave. Bilal says, give me another week. The man says, no, by God, I won't. So finally, Bilal succumbs and goes to the Prophet and tells him what happened. The Prophet doesn't reprimand Bilal, doesn't get mad at him, but he tells him, Bilal, Let's pray fervently to Allah to give us a way out. Because nothing would be more distasteful to me than to see you 
return to slavery. Now, of course, at that time, the Prophet knew that immediately if Bilal would be enslaved, Muslims would raise money to buy his freedom. But you, you, these were Muslims with a different mentality. They didn't sit there and philosophize about how slavery could be okay and the, the way the, 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 the shocking nature of, of modern Muslims and the nonsense they spew out. Bilal goes home and spends a good part of the night pleading with Allah to, to, to give him a way out. In the morning, lo and behold, one of the tribes sent the prophet a gift of two camels worth of material. Literally back then, when a tribe wanted to give a gift to another, they would load things on a camel, and you, and so what arrived were two camels worth. Immediately, the Prophet calls for Bilal and says, Bilal, take these two camels, take the, the material that was given to us as a gift, pay off the, our debts, pay off the debts of the Muslim treasury, and pay off the debt, the bond debt, that we are worried about. So Bilal, of course, is jubilant. Allah has sent a way out, a gift that was unexpected. And he goes, he pays off the bond debt, pays off the various debts that the Muslim state through the Prophet none of these debts had to do with anything that the Prophet himself purchased or his wives. All the debts had to do with helping people who belong to the Medina community or people who, re who sought help from the Prophet or from one of the companions. After Bilal does this, he returns to the Prophet The Prophet says, have you paid everything off? Yes, I have, alhamdulillah. Is anything left? Bilal says about what would be equal to two ounces of gold is left. The Prophet says, Arihna minha. Don't settle down, don't go home until you give it to someone to help a person in need because the Prophet among his characteristics, his personality, is he hated for wealth to be saved. He hated to save wealth while either belonging to him personally or for the money to be in the public treasury if there is someone in need. So Bilal sits and 
Praise to Allah, Allah, if there's someone who needs, please send them our way. And we, hardly a day passes and the two ounces are spent because several people do come asking for need. And finally, he told the Prophet, all is gone. We've paid our debts. We've helped everyone we can. And a new cycle begins. And the Prophet says, Alhamdulillah. Look at the attitude. Just reflect on the story. Look at the attitude that these people had towards money. Look at the nature of the leader of the Ummah. But it's not just the leader. It's those who work with the leader. A companion of the Prophet is willing to effectively enslave himself again, to become a slave again. Just to help someone in need, someone that he didn't even know or have a relationship with. The Prophet ﷺ has an allergic relationship to money. It is well known that among his characteristics is he hated spending on any luxury items. There were no luxury items in his home. In fact, once his daughter Fatima did something that was just a little expensive. He was extremely unhappy until she got rid of it. No, nothing embroidered or expensive or the leader of one of the greatest ummas and he lived simpler than the lowest person financially. Look at the commitment towards being in people's service. This is the type of moral fiber that fasting is supposed to build. When you fast, you're supposed to start realizing I am different than what I consume and excrete. I am different than what I own. If I deny myself I might gain perspective on what matters. And I might start realizing that what I own is not my own. And that it is my responsibility whether other people especially the closest to me, family, neighbors, fellow Muslims, and extending outwards, need or do not need. If they need, 
I must feel personally responsible for that need. This is the type of moral character that Siam fasting builds. This is why these people built a civilization. You can't turn satellite channels on any of the religious channels without having all these shiuch types talking ad nauseum about Ramadan this and Sunnah this and Hadith this and Sunnah this. But the most basic Sunnah, the most basic Sunnah is that responsibility begins at the top, not at the bottom. Moral example must be given by those at the top. And it is our obligation to make sure that those at the top act morally and ethically. You can't expect someone to feel moral responsibility for society if those who rule over them don't set a good moral example. Compare between the way Bilal acted as a public official and the way you see Muslims acting as public officials all over the Muslim world. Compare between the ruler of Medina and the ruler of Egypt and the ruler of Saudi and the ruler of the Emirat and the ruler of this and the ruler of that, all the countries that have money and will spend it on weapons and luxury items, but have nothing but indignation and resentment towards those in need. And who act like if you talk about their wealth, your, their wealth as if you've assaulted their being. Don't talk about my money. It's my money. If you want to understand why Islam became a world moral force or a moral force in the world, reflect upon the what Islam did to these early Muslims. A man who hated slavery was willing to re-enter slavery just to help a person in need. Because he felt the sense of responsibility as a public official responsible for the treasury. To even take a huge risk. And the Prophet ﷺ refusing to accept the idea of coveting and hoarding money if there is any person in need who might need this money in their pocket and at the service of their family. This is the morality that Ramadan is supposed to build.
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والله أكبر على المتجبرين ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين نو no. The moral force that Islam created in humanity at the time that religious institutions, the priestly class, whether in Persia or in Byzantium, or in any of the provinces of Presentia, or in Abyssinia, the richest people were the priestly class. They coveted money and hoarded money. People had come to expect everywhere that the most corrupt institutions were the churches and the synagogues and places of worship. And there comes this Prophet Muhammad restoring the message of Moses and the message of Jesus, restoring proper morality to where it should be, but not just by speech, but by action. This is what created the moral force The Quran repeats again and again in so many places It reminds us that our relationship to wealth is one of the biggest challenges there is to our Iman. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even tells us, وَلَن تَنَالُوا الْبِرِّ حَتَّى تُنْفِقُوا You will not that you will not be able to attain grace and goodness until you spend from what you love. Not spend the excess, not spend what's left over, but give. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even reminds us وَنْفِقُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَلَا تُلْقُوا بِأَيْدِيَكُمْ إِلَى التَّهْلُكَ reminds us that if you don't spend this is 
how you cast yourself into ruin. A lot of Muslims, when they want to act cowardly, they will recite this verse, Don't, don't cast yourself into ruin. But they'll often cite this verse and, and leave the first half of it. The verse is not just telling you don't cast yourself into ruin. It's telling you don't cast yourself into ruin by failing to spend in God's cause. That when you fail to spend, this is how you cast yourself into ruin. Typical of modern Muslims, they chop the first half out and just focus on that little part. Well, don't cast yourself into ruin. In fact, I know some of the funny, in not a good way, moments in my life when I would talk to some people and they justify not donating by saying, oh, you know, the job market is not secure and Allah said don't cast yourself into, into ruin. Allah didn't say don't cast yourself into ruin by not spending. Allah says exactly the opposite. The issue is not It's not that I am not a, a, a campaign uh, finance uh, 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 person. I'm not trying to convince someone to write me a check. But I am telling you this for a very simple reason. You want to understand the state that the Muslim Ummah is in You want to understand the state that the Muslim Ummah is in? Understand that we failed in spending in the way of God. We've learned, we failed to be like Bilal. We failed to learn the lessons of Ramadan. Doesn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Muhammad tell us that if you don't spend in the way of Allah, Allah will replace you as a people, Allah will fail, will stop supporting you. You will do dua, but it will not be answered. You will be saying, Allah, why? Why is it that Muslims are slaughtered in, in concentration camps in China? Why is it that Muslims are slaughtered in Burma and Rohingyas? Why is it that Muslims are slaughtered in Syria? Why is it that Muslims are persecuted everywhere? And why, Allah, why? Well, read Surah Muhammad. Allah tells you why. If you don't spend in the way of Allah, if you love your money more than you love Islam, then it's your fault. Then this is precisely the world. Why Allah is Islamophobia everywhere? Why is it that everyone is on a rampage against Muslim? Read Surah Muhammad. 
you either spend or you suffer the kind. The, the amazing thing, the amazing thing is come look at a Jewish funded center here in Los Angeles. What is it called? Skirball. You walk into this or into this institution, the Skirball Center. Unbelievable. All from private Jewish money. There is nothing like it by private Muslim money on the face of this earth. Unbelievably impressive. As, a, as an academic, I can tell you, I am jealous of my Jewish colleagues and my Christian colleagues and my Indian colleagues and my Chinese Buddhist colleagues because all my colleagues are funded and supported by their constituencies. But as a Muslim, nothing. Nothing. As a Muslim, if a, Muslim, if, a, if a wealthy family writes a check to a Sunni Institute for $500, they're very proud of themselves. Why, Allah, are we Muslims in the, way, in the, in the condition we're in? Before I close, there are two quick things I must mention. Recently, the Muslim Ummah lost a great man and a great thinker, a Saudi Abdullah Hamid, who is among the most brilliant people who wrote about constitutional monarchies. If Muslims had supported their institutions and Muslims had civil society organizations, Abdullah Hamid would have been recognized as a Nelson Mandela, would have been recognized as a Jack Rousseau or John Locke, Abdullah Hamid wrote brilliant material on the idea of constitutional monarchies and Islam. As a result, he was arrested, sentenced to 10 years in Saudi Arabia, the last time he was arrested, and the man is 70 years old and needed a heart operation. The Saudi authorities refused and let the 70-year-old suffer until he died. Abdullah Hamid is like Khashoggi, but Abdullah Hamid was a better scholar. May Allah bless Allah Khashoggi was a great man and a great thinker, but Abdullah Hamid was as an intellectual. And a, a, a very formidable. He died in prison, neglected medically. Where are the human rights countries? They don't care. 
few human rights organizations said that's bad. But again, I, I don't even expect much from them. But what outrages me, like Khashoggi, like Morsi, Muslim organizations, where is the idea of the Ummah? Where is that Bilal who's willing to sell, sell himself into slavery to help a Muslim? We won't even say. Abdullah al-Hamid died an unjust, oppressive death. We won't even call injustice, injustice. Oh, no, maybe this is a Saudi affair. Really? This is where Muslims are now? Saudi affair? Second thing, for the first time in history, not only are the mosques all over the Muslim world closed, but from Corona, that's a different thing, but the Egyptian government has a new law that you can't read Quran on and broadcast Quran from mosques and microphones. And you can't do ibtihal or tawashih. So the, the one of the noisiest countries in the world with cars beeping, people shouting, the, all you know, nightclubs blasting music, Nile cruises, just, you can hear rock and roll, you can hear dancing, you can hear belly dancing, you can hear yelling, screaming, you can hear everything, but it is forbidden from now on in Egypt to hear Quran in public. Connect this last point. There was an article published in Middle East Report how Islamophobia is tying Muslims to the coronavirus. The BBC, every time they talk about the failures of the World Health Organization, they show images of mosques or muhajjabah sitting in front of computers. CNN, when it talks about the danger of my immigration to the United States and the coronavirus for some reason, it shows images of mosques and muhajjabas and people praying. But the real doozy recently, as Ramadan approached, one of the biggest Islamophobes, his name is Paul Sperry. Paul Sperry wrote a horrific uh, uh, Mian Kampf type of text, exactly like Hitler's Mian Kampf anti-Semitic rant. A book called Infiltration, How Muslim Spies and Subversive Have Penetrated Washington. And Paul Sperry wrote another book called The Muslim Mafia, The Secret Underworld That's Conspiring to Islamize America. Now, Paul Sperry sent out a tweet saying, 
about how Ramadan is dangerous to Americans because Muslims will not respect social distancing in Ramadan and they will become a source of infection and coronavirus will be jihadized. Who retweets Paul Sperry's message? Donald Trump. When Donald Trump is asked how he can retweet the message of a racist and an Islamophobe and a bigot, he gives a completely incoherent response. Here's Donald Trump's response. I just spoke with leaders and people that love mosques. I've seen a great disparity in this country. I've seen a very strong anti-Israel bent in Congress with Democrats. The things that they say about Israel are so bad and I can't believe it. I just had a call with imams. I don't know what happened with our country, but the Christian faith is treated much differently than it was, and I think it's, it's treated very unfairly. That's his response as to why he retweeted Paul Sperry. Now, what is the relationship between the Bilal story, the murder of, of Abdullah al-Hamid, the closing or the banning of broadcasting Quran and Tawashih in mosques, from mosques in Egypt, and the retweeting of Paul Sperry's bigoted Islamophobic rants, and the BBC and CNN associating the micro corona with Islam and Islamic danger, at least in the subconscious of the viewers. It's all an integrated whole. We would not be in this situation if one thing, if we spent our money, if we didn't spend in luxury items, it is incredible that I have written 10 books lived an entire lifetime, now approaching the grave, knowing that it is just a matter of days before it's over. And I can honestly and sincerely say that I've received very little support from my fellow Muslims. And, and there are people much worse. There are young scholars and Muslims who want to help orphans, Muslims who want to build institutions, Muslims who are brilliant, who are gifted. The one thing they don't have are resources. And they don't have resources because Muslims don't spend in the way of God. Saudiya, the servant of the two holy shrines has spent money to fund a couple of soap operas that support Israel against Palestinians. That's what they're spending their money on now. Jailing Palestinians and supporting Israel. The Emirat spends tons of money killing people in Yemen, killing people in Libya, protecting a dictator in Egypt, 
Egyptians spend tons of money fighting Islamist Islamization in every respect and every sense. They close down mosques, they tear down mosques. In other words, governments have betrayed and abandoned. But where are you? If fasting doesn't teach you the proper relationship to your wealth, then fasting hasn't done anything for you. Paul Sperry exists because of our weakness. Because when Paul Sperry wrote this Islamophobic, bigoted, racist stuff, he found tons of people that are willing to support him and fund him and buy his garbage and circulate it all over. But Muslims can't imagine that type of support. Finally, despite the, the murder of Khashoggi and Abdullah al-Hamid and, and Morsi and the Islamophobia and Donald Trump, you still find Muslims. who say, we don't take a position on Morsi. We don't take a position on Abdullah al-Hamid. We don't take a position on Khashoggi. We don't take a position on even Islamophobia. We don't take a position on Trump. Then you don't take a position on morality. Then you don't take a position on ethics. Then there is no point in having you on the face of this earth. Because you just take up space and time, but you're a burden upon moral communities. Allahumma anna. اللهم اغفر لنا اللهم ارحمنا اللهم اهدنا لأقرب من هذا رشد يا علي عظيم وانصر الإسلام يا علي عظيم وانصر الإسلام يا رب العالمين الله forgive our sins help guide us to the straight path bestow your love and blessings upon us we need your love we need your blessings we need your guidance. Allow us to internalize the meaning of our fast, the meaning of Ramadan, and to live a life acting upon it. Ya Allah, Ya Ali, Ya Azim. Wa akam Allah, Ya 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 Allah,